welcome to the Leading for Good podcast. I'm Elaine Herdman Barker, co-founder of Global Leadership Associates. In this series, we'll be talking with special guests who are transforming leadership. We'll be asking leaders how they tip the world towards the good, learning about ways we can stretch our thinking and discovering so much more about a leader's footprint. With strategic thinkers from all over the world, we'll investigate just what leading for good means today. Hello, I'm here today with Andrew Wallace, who's the founder and CEO of Unseen, an organisation working towards the eradication of modern slavery. His bio is attached, but the phrase, the loveliest disruptor you could ever meet, is perhaps all that needs saying for now. Not only is it memorable, it suggests more than a fighting spirit is required to stop the exploitation of people. Andrew, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Good to have you here. You're dedicated to helping the injured, people who are treated simply as lucrative commodities, hidden away in an illicit global trade. What's the scale of the problem you're tackling? I imagine it's going to surprise people. So globally, the current estimates are that about 40 million, just a little bit north of that, individuals are held in situations of modern slavery. That could be forced labour, sexual exploitation, domestic servitude, forced criminality, forced marriage and organ trafficking. That figure is significantly out of date now and is being looked at again and the estimates are that it will be revised up upwards not helped by the pandemic either so probably somewhere approaching 60 million people to bring it down to sort of and make it connectable to people because 60 million is a big number yeah. to deal with it's a trade that's probably worth half a trillion dollars profit per annum but if I, you know, if I was to ask three questions of people, namely, are you wearing clothes, do you eat food, and do you have consumer electronics, then we are all probably connected to at least 40 or 60 slaves in the world's supply chains. So it's a big problem, but it's a problem that touches all of our lives. Wow. Shocking. And how do you go about disrupting that? That's a great question. I mean, I think with it's very trite to sort of say these things, but the reality is, it is it often feels like you're pushing water up a hill mm. because what you're trying to disrupt are baked in systems that lead to situations of modern slavery. So the push factors, economic, climate, persecution, wars, and the pull factors are a demand for cheap services, cheap goods, and cheap labor. So we've got this global system that is perfectly designed to deliver the results that we're getting. So hence why I enjoyed receiving the title of the loveliest disruptor you'll ever meet is because actually what in order to tackle this, you have to think at a systems level in terms of what are the big things that we need to do. But in order to be able to do that, you also simultaneously have to deal with an individual. So my organisation works directly with individuals that have been victims of modern slavery. And we take, if you like, that frontline expertise of working with individuals, working with police, working with businesses, running the UK's modern slavery helpline, all of that frontline information to then really think hard about what are the systemic problems that are at play here, whether that's the model for procurement that is entirely incentivized on profit that creates the environment for exploitation to take place. Or what does it mean to safely migrate? And actually, what is our attitude? And this is particularly pertinent to the UK at the moment. 
what's our attitude towards the other or to the migrant or to the refugee and the asylum seeker or to the potential vulnerable to exploitation. And then having an evidence base and, and proving that actually if you do things differently, you get different outcomes. So it, it feels massive or mighty scale of problem that you're facing. And to disrupt it, how I'm trying to imagine how you can think strategically to disrupt this scale of problem. And we all imagine that we're capable of thinking strategically, planning for the long term. But from what you're saying, there's so much more to it that disruption, I imagine, comes when we change what we're thinking about strategically, if that makes sense. Yes, and I think we're not taught in society to think either long-term or to think strategically. We're, we're taught to deal with the problems that are immediately in front of us. And yes, we might have a three-year plan or a five-year plan. But often, you know, when I talk with other business leaders, I say, okay, so what's your strategy for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Because for me to tackle bottom slavery, I have to think in those timelines because I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to achieve our mission statement, which is to put ourselves out of business in the next 5, 10 or 20 years. I think I can do it in a generation, so 40 or 50 years in that whole process. So that means then you have to say, okay, what do do we need to do now that will affect that long term? I think the second thing is that there are a limited number of people that can think strategically. And that's not me blowing my own trumpet. I think that is just sort of borne out by by the evidence. And then I think there's another thing, which is I remember in 2011 sitting in the Home Office and and them saying to me, you know, you're not going to get an independent anti-slavery commission. You're certainly not going to get a modern slavery act. Get out of your head if you think you're going to get better care for victims. You're certainly not going to get a helpline. And this thing about transparency and supply chains, i.e. bringing businesses into the equation, absolutely not. We're in the middle of a red tape challenge. I love it when people say to me, you can't do those things. Because I'm, I'm, I probably haven't grown up because I go, well, why? And, and it's partly driven by you know, my social justice bent. But it's like, why do we have to accept the way that things are? And then you go into, well, any idiot can ask why. It, it's then beyond that. You've got to then come forward with, with solutions and workable solutions. And that's a, that's a lot of work. And I think this is the reason that, you know, I achieved all of those five things, not on my own with the help of lots of other people, but we achieved them because we went and did the hard nine yards, we found the evidence, we, put, we did the hard thinking around, okay, what are the alternatives, what would happen if we, did, if we did these things, so that you build a compelling argument for doing it. That does it but even doing that isn't enough. You then need you know, a good headwind, political, we need a political mouse to, to make it happen politically in that whole process. Now that took five or six years just to get to that. Did we, you know, did we eradicate modern slavery with the advent of the Modern Slavery Act in 2015? No. And it's about coming back to that long-term name the whole time. Keep course correcting, keep coming back, but keep saying and reminding yourself, this is what we're trying to do. And it it will be disruption because I think things settle to almost like the lowest common denominator. Actually, we want things to be better than just as they are. And often that means to completely upending things. And there's a number of elements that I'd just like to continue with, if I may. And one of those is you touched on working with businesses and governments and and other stakeholders. So it it sounds as if you're bringing into your, your strategy the collective endeavor 
the collaboration rather than being a lone wolf fighting from a corner. It sounds as though that's a central piece of your strategic intent. I think it's both and. So I think the starting point is is the lone wolf. It is looking at something. And I think this is, you know, why do charities exist? I think they exist because somebody at some point looked at something and said, this isn't right. We need to change this. I think often where things go wrong is it actually, it's, it's not too long before it then becomes about the preservation of the thing rather than changing you know, the issue in that whole process. So I think you, it's about that ability to look and say, but then actually going, I can't do this on my own. I, you know, and it's the humility of saying, I haven't got all the smarts here. So, you know, it's an old adage, but you know, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you so you look reasonably competent. But it's then because this is a societal issue, because this is a structural systemic issue, you can't just do one bit. You've got to do all of the bits simultaneously or try and do them simultaneously and try and do that. And so it is about building coalitions. And, and we talk about, you know, um, creating cows, coalitions of the willing. So, you know, to really stretch this analogy, you know, you've got to have a herding instinct as well. So if you don't do it structurally and you don't do it across the whole of society, then things can get out of kilter pretty quickly. And you have to deal with that internal frustration of you can't always go at the pace that you want to go at. You've got to sort of wait. And it's a constant battle. And because it's that constant battle, you end up upsetting people because sometimes, you know, they go, well, we can do this, but it'll take us 20 years to do it. Well, we don't have 20 years. You know, I need you to do it in three. And so that, that's, that's a constant tension that you have to live with in that whole process. But then it is also saying, how do I construct my arguments for doing this thing where people are compelled to do it and want to do it. And it, it's, but beyond that, it's beyond just being the right thing to do, it's actually also beneficial to do it as well. And for leaders in lots of different sectors, they talk about zooming in and zooming out and looking for the long-term acting now. And it's a, an ordinary part of their daily lives. But what strikes me is you're in an extraordinary environment. So with millions of children being trafficked every year, there's urgency to it to act now, to see the pain and the horror that's occurring worldwide. And yet you also need to find time to pause, to look up and out and and to reflect on what it is you've, you've been describing. How do you manage that? I mean, for me, I think there's an internal compass and an internal motivation and I would defy anybody to meet a victim of trafficking and not get some of that as, as well you know child or adult because that is somebody's child it's somebody's father mother uncle daughter son niece nephew and the modern slavery is agnostic in terms of, of who it's going to victimize in that whole process and I've met victims with an MBA and I've met victims that don't know what a mobile phone is so you know at, at all points in between so I think that that motivation of this is not right and this is not how other human beings should be treated, it is internally set w- within me. Yes, being the CEO of an organisation, you know, zoom in, zoom out, blah, 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 whatever. But I surround people that can do that for me. I think my primary role is about vision setting and, and leading the organisation forward. And because what we're dealing with isn't just per se to the organisation itself, it is about this structural societal problem. My role is 
if I if I look at my job description, it is 80, 90% outward facing. And a lot of that outward facing is about ultimately it's about putting the organization out of business because you're you're trying to tackle those structural issues that that means that modern slavery can't exist. But that point around pausing, I think I can pause when you know when I'm pushing up the daisies because life's too short. But there are times when you just need to reflect and, and think. And so it's taking yourself away from it completely, which is, yeah, it sounds really easy to do, but it is almost sort of switching off. And, and for me, it's simple things like taking the dog for a walk and just allowing at a subconscious level things to sort of percolate and, and trickle through or just stepping away just because if you don't disengage and you don't decouple, it, it's very easy to get ground down and then actually become effective. And, and sometimes it is it is that subconscious thinking of just letting things sort of percolate and then things come up. Now, for me, I'm also an external processor, so it's funny people that I can just do the fact with where, don't hold me to this, I just need to kick these these things around, this is what I'm thinking. And out of that, it helps the formulation of ideas and, and next steps. And disengaging, decoupling, pausing, they all speak to a relationship to time and being conscious of how we are working through time, which is probably very unfashionable in today's world where we're pretty squeezed and and pinched for time. And I'm thinking about leaders in, in other sectors who may have an interest, feel a sense of commitment to modern slavery, but don't find the time to engage. And whether there is a relationship between time and social responsibility. If we've got so much of our our noses, as you say, to the grindstone, how do we disengage and find a different relationship to time? It's difficult because it means then you've got to make a conscious decision to swim against not only the tide, but you know, the shoal that's going in, in, in the other direction. But actually, you know, there's so much research out there now in terms of, you know, even if in an hour, how effective are you in, it in an hour? And you can only be effective, and it does tail off really rapidly, for about a maximum of 40 minutes in every hour. And then you, you should disengage. You should step away. I've just taken my senior management team through this, which is, you know, they were all saying, oh, we don't have enough time and everything else. And I said, okay, actually, I only want you to work 40 minutes in every hour. And you could see sort of the initial shock of actually how does that work? Or, you know, to look wider than my organization, this whole thing moves towards a four-day week. You know, does it work? All the evidence seems to suggest that it is working. So how we can be productive is the first step. But the point of pausing and the point of thinking and the point of, as some psychologists say, is the point of boredom is actually allowing our brains to reset so that they can cope. And look, I'm I'm north of 50. It isn't just for people of my age. It, it's, you know, what's changed in, in the last generation is the volume of information that comes at us and our ability to process that information. And, and not just the volume, but the speed of information that comes. Part of the way of processing it is pausing. It's reflecting. It's stepping away. It's building in time for recreation, for rest, for boredom, so that when we do work, it's effective. And actually, a lot of a lot of my role, and I think a lot of senior roles, is about thinking, mulling, contemplating, and less about doing. And so that when you do do, it, it, it's effective. 
but also it's about the long term. It's back to this long term. You know, if I run at 100 miles an hour you know, the whole time, or, or to, you know, that analogy, if you burn the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. It's, you know, when, when is the time to light the candle? When is the time, the time to blow the candle out? You know, when is the time to shut the laptop or turn the phone off? And, you know, we can use technology to, to see ourselves from the business as well so that, you know, we're not compatible. And often we think we're far more important than we actually are. Then we've discovered that the world functions quite happily and the organisation functions quite happily without us. So that should bring a little bit of humility to the whole process. It's finding that balance. And the human quality as well. I was thinking uh, as you were speaking there, what we get as individuals from engaging with something beyond ourselves. You mentioned earlier about your inner world and what's motivating you. So what individuals may get out of contributing to the lives of people they are never going to meet. Let me bring it back to the long term. Like, so when, when you're lying on your deathbed, what is it that you want to be remembered for? And what is it that you, you know, what, or put it another way, what would be in your obituary? You know, they you worked all hours that possibly could, you know, and at the end of that, you could just write the question, so what? Or is it actually, this is what I contributed to society. This is how I tried to make better wherever I am and, and the situation that, that I'm in. And actually, do you even need that recognition, you know, by helping someone that you make? that you may never meet if you do then actually there's a question around your value system there, there as well so this is about you know how how can i contribute to the improving of the world from where it currently is and, and it doesn't really matter what sector you're in that that should be it so actually that obituary talks about the value that you've given back how you've contributed not what you've amassed or acquired or not you know Great, you had thousands of stock options and lots of different high techs. Well, guess what? They don't come with you. And so, you know, maybe the ultimate long-term question is, you know, how how do you want your life to be assessed at its end? And then work back from that to wherever you are and say, okay, well, what does that direction of travel now look like from where I am to then? Could that be applied to businesses? I wonder whether some businesses are getting lost in the woods of success. And that that notion could be broadened significantly. Absolutely. I mean, so why why do businesses exist? And maybe that's a question. You know, if you're a CEO or you know you're a senior leader within the business, is to say, well, what is the purpose for what we're doing? You know, what kind of organisation are we? Are we just about maximising returns to shareholders and, and investors and making profits and getting bigger salaries and, and doing more, more, more? Or actually, is there a social purpose to business and business? You know, if you go back a few centuries, the purpose of business was for social good. And I think we've lost that. And we've lost it through things like quarterly reporting and the way that you know, investments are structured and, and how we assess what, what a good business is. And we should be saying, you know, business is part of our social construct. What is the purpose of that business and, and what social good can it bring? Because otherwise it's just lost. It just becomes a money-making machine. And unfortunately, this tie all the way back to modern slavery, which is it's, it's that environment that has led to you know, procurement only being incentivized on profit, 
that puts enormous strain on a business, quarterly reporting does exactly the same. And once you put those pressures into the system, they work their way down the system, and then you create an environment that is right for exploitation and corner cutting and, and all, all of those things that we regularly now and repeatedly read in, in the press. So you, you then say, well, okay, if that's true, then the purpose of business is to bring exploitation. Is that really what you're about? And you know, there aren't many people that would answer yes to that, but it's the inconvenient truth. And then you come back to, okay, well, we need to change the system. We need to change the business because that's not why this business started in the first place. And businesses are full of good people that want, want it to be significant and, and bring change. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's a bit like the, the matrix. You know, you get plugged into it and then you, you can't really see, like you said, the wood for the trees. And you need to unplug yourself and say, actually, what's my individual purpose and what are my values? Does that align with, with this business or do I need to realign this business? So there are values and there are purpose and there is societal good. Thank you, Andrew. And I've got one, one final question. It's about human dignity. It's an old-fashioned term. But do you think there's, there's ample room for us to bring the notion of paying attention to, to human dignity and the flesh and blood in organisations? rather than language around currency? Yes. And, and I think we pay lip service to it because I've, I've never yet met a business that says, oh, our most valuable asset are our people. And then you go, well, prove it. What, what does that mean? And how does that work? But I think it's, it's wider than that. And it's how do we want to be treated by others and how do we treat others? Really, really matters. And I think... Having come through the pandemic, living in the midst of the current economic crisis and the uncertainty around the globe, and all of these massive issues that are coming careering towards us, there are things that are within our control and things that are outside of our control. But the things that are within our control is how we treat others. That's always within our control, and that's always a choice. And if, if we see others, and in my case, it's often the other and the minority and the oppressed, and the exploited, if we see others and how we treat them as actually critical to how we are perceived and treated as well, then I think lots of things change. And ultimately, we are responsible for ourselves and those things that we can control. So what's the scorecard going to be? It's a wonderful thought to end on. We have a choice in how we treat others. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for joining us for our third episode of Leading for Good. Do take a look at our show notes for more links and information and be sure to join us for future episodes when I chat with Kate Eisler, co-founder and CEO of the W Marketplace and James Cameron, Vice President of Global Leadership and Learning in Walmart. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.